You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And uh, you might notice a, a theme in these programs in that we always talk about some of my favorite shows. And uh, this one certainly was a lot of people's favorite show and uh, casts a very long shadow. And I'm talking about Seinfeld, and we probably have the best guest I can think of outside of an actual cast member to talk about because she has a best-selling New York Times best-selling book on it. And uh, I, I would consider her an expert. We're talking about Jennifer Cajun Armstrong. She is the author of Seinfeldia, how a show about nothing changed everything. Now, if her name sounds familiar, we just had her on a few weeks ago talking about the great Mary Tyler Moore show because she is also the author of Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, a history of the Mary Tyler Moore show. She writes about pop culture for several publications, including the New York Times Book Review, Fast Company, New York's Vulture, BBC Culture, Entertainment Weekly, and others. She lives in New York City, and you can visit her site online at JenniferKArmstrong.com. Jennifer, welcome back to the program today. Thank you for having me again. Now, originally, we were going to talk about Seinfeld. That was the original intention. Of course, then we had the passing of Mary Tyler Moore. And I said, oh, we need someone on who wrote a book about Mary Tyler Moore. And and there you were. So I'm glad we're able to actually uh, wish that circumstance hadn't happened, but glad to have you back on. Now, in this book, Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. I'm going to ask you about that subtitle. How did it change everything? It might be a slight exaggeration. Um <laughs> Well, within the context of you know, a sitcom, as much within, as a sitcom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That is, that's exactly right. Television in general, I think. You know, it, it changed a lot of things. It, it showed that TV could actually be smart in addition to being funny, especially the sitcom, which, you know, shows like the Mary Taylor Moore show notwithstanding, especially at this time, which is, you know, late 80s into the early 90s. If you think about the 80s and the sitcom, um, you know, that was sort of, it was, they were fun, but they weren't exactly deep or that brilliant or complex. We were in the age of like silver spoons and different strokes and the facts of life and stuff like that, you know? And so Seinfeld really showed us that you could do, you could make an artful sitcom. Um, there are definitely elements there that we hadn't seen before. It's very, it has the sort of postmodern sensibility to it where it's, it's deconstructing the sitcom as it's giving you a really solid sitcom. They switched from the traditional two-story model. Usually there's like an A and B story on most shows to having four characters have you know very disparate plot lines that what they would then bring together in really surprising ways at the end. That was a completely new idea. Plus they also, you know, showed that you could do all of this while having an absolutely gigantic mass hit, you know, 40 million people watched the show every week. So, you know, and they also introduced things like the um, anti-hero, arguably, you know, I, I would say that the characters on Seinfeld are not the most admirable humans we've seen on television. And people loved it because they're flawed and they're weird and they're quirky and more interesting to watch than a perfect hero. So, they they changed a lot of a lot of things on television. 
I think now more so than when the show was out, people realized that a huge part of the show, a huge part was Larry David and kind of that relationship between Larry David, uh, who was behind the scenes, although I know he played George Steinbrenner. Get me a calzone, Costanza. But anyway, but anyway, he he was behind the scenes, uh, the mastermind along with Seinfeld. But really talk about that team. Uh, a little bit, uh, you had an interesting anecdote in the book about how they came up with the idea They <laughs> and, and just talk about that team because that really is at the heart of it, the heart of Seinfeld. Absolutely. And I would even add to that, that with regard to our, your last question, you know, another huge contribution in general of the show is the way it kind of elevated this the role of the showrunner. You know, everybody now or a lot of people now know what a showrunner is. Yeah, but people didn't know that then. This is like, it's not the first show to have this kind of auteur approach, but I think it made such an impact that it brings in this era that where now we know who all the showrunners is. We know who Shonda Rhimes is and we've never seen her on camera, you know, that sort of thing. And this is, this is exactly, I think that Larry David is one of the first, it was like the cool kids knew, you know, who that Larry David was really the brains behind the whole operation. And it really was this collaboration. I think they have this kind of Lennon McCartney, him and Jerry Seinfeld collaboration. It's like they balance each other really nicely. But yeah, and they, he was really kind of also the creative impetus that got it going because the network had approached Jerry Seinfeld to do a show as they would approach many comedians. He was doing really well as a stand-up at the time. And, but he was just like, I, ne- I, you know, I never really thought about what I would actually do with the show, but sure. And he ended up telling his friend Larry David at, at a comedy club one day where they were playing about this situation. And they started talking. And that was really when the show started to come together. This was, you know, they were kind of riffing back and forth, went to a deli and they were like sort of making fun of all the weird things you can find in a New York deli. And it was Larry David who said, this is, this should be the show, two guys talking, which I always say, you know, any two guys talking is probably not a show, but Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld talking makes a very good basis for a show. And of course the show got more complex as it went on. But the real idea, you know, at the beginning was, what if it's just two two guys who know they're funny, kind of riffing on stuff, and Jerry can play himself where he's a comedian, so it's fine that he has these insights and jokes as he talks. And that was it. That was how the show started. Also, it occurs to me, New York. New York, uh, to me, is almost a character in the show. Absolutely. This is something that I think you start to hear, you know, I, I, I don't know if they were the first, but they were among the first to actually say, you know, New York is our fifth character on the show. And while many things had been set in New York, I don't know if anyone had approached it quite that way before. And, you know, since then, you've heard several shows say that New York is a character and, you know, I'm writing my next book about sex in the city and it's something they talk about too. It's a different New York in sex in the city versus Seinfeld, both authentic in their own ways. But yeah, it's New York huge on the show. And what's particularly extraordinary about this is that they didn't shoot in New York. They had to shoot in Los Angeles and I think they did a pretty good job. You know, I've lived in New York for 15 years now and so I have that snobby kind of like, this doesn't really seem like New York, like when I watch <laughs> Friends or something like right. that. But Seinfeld, though I can obviously tell that they're on a set, it, it feels like 
it rings pretty true because they were so good at giving us authentic New York stories. I think of things like Elaine's favorite Chinese restaurant, not delivering to her side of the street. Like their cutoff is the other side of the street and she like goes across the street and hides in a closet to get her Chinese delivery. And that to me, that's such a New York thing for all of the different kind of cranky shopkeepers and people like that, that we encounter throughout the show, the most famous being this Nazi, but there are many, many situations like that, you know, along the way, the dry cleaner where he has to pretend that he's married to his girlfriend to get the discount. And, you know, there's just all these little practical things that they deal with constantly on the show that feel so real. And it's because they, you know, used stories that happened to them in real life, um, oftentimes during their time in New York, even though, you know, obviously the writers had moved to Los Angeles, but New York, kind of authentic New York stories were a premium on the show. Now, it amazes me that the show got on the network. I mean, it would seem like since it was so different, it seems like they would probably have had pushback in a number of areas. Was that was that the case or did it just kind of sneak under the radar? Well, it stuck for sure. And, and it was definitely under the radar. And that is why it was able to sneak. Sometimes this story is told as this, like, you know, uh, networks just don't understand greatness when they see it. But the other side of it is that because the show was not very popular at first, they were able to, first of all, work out what they were even doing. And second of all, kind of sneak up on us. So the very first episode aired on July 5th, 1989. It aired all by itself. So this was not like they, you know, ordered a season. This was a dumping of the pilot in the middle of summer, which, you know, anyone who knows anything about television, especially then knows, you know, your show going in the middle of summer is not great. Your show being like, no, we'll just take this one episode. Thanks. Bye. Is not a good sign. And then they run it, you know, the day after a national holiday, like they were trying to make sure no one saw it. You know what I mean? And it was only because one of the executives in particular really loved it and really wanted to save it. His name is Rick Ludwin, and he was in charge of late night and specials, and he was the one who had initially recruited Jerry Seinfeld. And so his bosses basically said, you know, if you can figure out a way to do this budget-wise, then go ahead, but we're not going to give you any extra money. So he got rid of one Bob Hope special that he had in his budget for the following summer, which would be two hours long, and used that budget to make four half-hour Seinfelds. So we have this very odd situation where we have one episode season, essentially, then a year later in the summer again, there's four episodes. Again, not not a great sign, but better than nothing. So they ran those episodes after Cheers reruns. And it wasn't until the executives saw the numbers on those, they saw that Seinfeld was retaining that Cheers audience, which Cheers was the gold standard. They were building out it in some categories, mainly the very desirable categories like wealthy young people. And that's huge. You know, if, if they start to if they start to see ways they can make money on you, then they they stop questioning the creative content that you're putting out. So as it got, you know, it, it, it was a very slow build. It was this one episode, four episodes, then they did 13 episodes the following year, they started mid-season. So this was like a slight graduation, you know, from summer to mid-season. And then they finally got their full-on, like, adult-size, real 
season order the following year for 22 episodes starting in the fall. So it was a very slow build. And by the time they got to that point, they were able to sort of build a cult audience first, started to really love it. And then they were all of a sudden kind of full steam ahead, you know, let's do this thing. And that was when they became very, very popular and very powerful and were able to do almost anything they wanted on the show without the network stepping in. In terms of humor, I think it was a little bit different. And I think that, you know, the two main people who were behind the show, Jerry Seinfeld and uh, Larry David, were Jewish. And I think it had that sensibility a little bit about that and something that we may not have seen as much, although, you know, many, many entertainers over the years uh, have been Jewish, obviously, but it it had a little bit different sensibility. Did the, now I know when we talked about Mary Tyler Moore, there was almost a, uh, you know, I think you said there was a saying that people won't watch divorced women uh, and and uh, people with mustaches and Jews on television, which is very unfortunate. I mean, did they I mean, <laughs> we're talking about 20, 25 years later, but did they run into the, the same kind of thing initially? Was that ever an issue? And, and am I right? Is that a part of the sensibility of the show? Yeah, it's sort of famously in those early days that I was talking about when the network didn't have a lot of faith in it. A lot of the executives themselves actually responded to the show. They sort of liked the show, but they were all coastal Jews too. And so they, they famously said it was too New York and too Jewish to be a mass hit. And so that was part of the reason for burying it and not giving it much of a chance. It was like, they sort of got it, but they didn't think America would get it, you know, which is very common the hinterlands flyover country. Exactly. It's and it's very it comes up again and again. And it's so funny that for some reason it persists this idea. I mean, I guess we see it politically even now, so it's not that surprising, but all the way back at least to the Mary Taylor Moore show era two, executives were saying this very condescending kind of stuff about, you know, the Midlands that they don't understand and whatever, that that sort of thing. And it's like it turns out that if it's funny, people like it. You know, if it's good, people tend to like it. And there was this certainly Jewish sensibility. It's it's clear to people that it's a Jewish show. They were very weird, probably because of that objection of the networks. They were very, you know, underground about how Jewish it was. And, you know, they never, they very rarely talk about being explicitly Jewish on the show. There's not a lot of religion. There's only hints. And like George has this very confusing identity, for instance, George Costanza. Um, you know, his, his last name is not Jewish, but he clearly is. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but there is, I think you're right. I think that you see hints of kind of that very specific kind of Borschfeldt humor there, especially in Larry David's stuff, you know, there's a, even things like they're kind of, I, I think they have a really musical ear for language on the show and part of their humor is rhythm, you know what I mean? And that is something you will often hear that language-based and rhythmic kind of delivery in Borschfeldt humor, which comes from Yiddish. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's like people kind of got that it was Jewish. I'm a shiksa from the Midwest, and I feel like I learned at least a lot of cultural Jewish workers from this show. I mean, I grew up in an an overwhelmingly Catholic area, and so I knew very few Jews, 
but this is where I learned about, you know, Marvel Rye and, <laughs> and the Bruce is an episode. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like words like Shiksa and, you know, she, there's this episode about how Elaine has Shiksa appeal. And so, you know, there's, I think that it, it snuck a lot of stuff in on us, even something as simple as his parents living, having retired to Florida is, is a very Jewish thing. And his parents are closely Jewish. And I mean, they're obviously not hiding that his name is Seinfeld, but it, it, they did, you know, I think they were still really wary of it, but, and you'll see, you see when uh, Larry David goes on to do Curb Your Enthusiasm, he goes full Jew, you know, he goes, he does all the Jewish stuff he's ever wanted to do. He is not afraid of it anymore. Um, but that's a very different show. And it, but it's interesting. It's almost like kind of an evolution, you know, curb your enthusiasm. It's like, well, there's George Costanza in real life. There's in the, in the, in the flesh. And obviously it's a, it, it's a TV show. So I'm sure Larry David is not exactly like that, but, but um, interesting, uh, interesting thing. But the funny thing is you're talking about the different little plot points from the show. I have a big smile on my face. I think maybe a lot of people listening to this now do too, because they remember the marble rye and, you know, everybody had a pony and the soup Nazi who we got to interview or whatever it might be, you know, can't spare square master of your domain, all these little things, uh, yada, yada, yada. Why did Seinfeld have so many like memorable catchphrases? I can't remember before or, or can't think of anybody since that they've had so much of these like cultural things, you know, people are my age. Definitely. I'm, I'm in my late four, mid to late forties. You know, you say yada, yada, yada to somebody my age. Oh yeah. Seinfeld. I mean, why did it have so many of these kind of cultural hooks? Yeah, it's incredible. It's funny. I, I keep saying, except I keep saying we, we need a different word than catchphrase for this because like, I always think of the traditional catchphrase is like dynamite from uh, good times or something like that where it's like one character, one thing he says over and over again. It's like a meme. Right, right. It is. It's exactly a meme. But this is different, right? This is about they turn them out every week, and then they didn't return to them, really. I mean, they might once in a while make another reference. But it's very rare, actually. Like, my theory on how they do this, I sort of, I sort of tried to analyze how they did it. And the thing is, first of all, the characters know they're funny. Right. So that really helps because they invent these phrases as these characters and they know they're clever. And so they kind of like they'll they'll start with one of these ideas and then they keep repeating it throughout the episode. You know, instead of repeating a phrase over time the way previous shows did, they just repeat it many times in one episode and kind of experiment with it in different contexts, different ways of saying it. I'm thinking of something like master of my domain. Like, first of all, that sounds great. They have that musical ear. So it's fun to say. And then they kind of, they do that. They do variations on it. Master of my domain, queen of the castle, lord of the manor. And it kind of becomes almost this call and response throughout the episode. So that by the time you're done with the episode, you go to work the next day, right? This is how it used to work, is you would watch it Thursday night so that you would go to work or school on Friday. And everyone would be saying this thing. And if you didn't watch the show... You missed out. So suddenly you go to work. You missed, you were you were out for dinner on Thursday night. You go to work the next day. Everybody's saying no soup for you, and you're like, "Why is everyone saying this?" So <laughs> you had to watch because otherwise they were all going to be running around saying the same thing that made no sense to you, and everyone was going to be laughing except you. So as this went on over time, it really becomes this self fulfilling prophecy, right? That oh god, I have to watch this show because everybody's going to be running around saying this thing and laughing. 
if I don't watch. So that more and more people watch it, more and more people are saying it, and it just becomes embedded. And it wouldn't work if if these weren't interesting, fun, funny, useful phrases. I really think they're very useful in a lot of ways. And that's part of it too, is they gave us ways to talk about certain ideas that we didn't have. So we didn't have a word for shrinkage before this. <laughs> and it was a way of talking about something really uncomfortable and sexual and embarrassing. And you suddenly had this funny thing you could say instead in, in mixed company, as they used to say, right? Like, Suddenly you could just say this and it wasn't like a bad word. It wasn't, you know, and it's the brilliance of a lot of these, especially the kind of sex-based ones like Master of My Domain. You know, that's not a funny episode if you just say the word masturbation over and over. Like it would be gross. Um, (laughs) But because they come up with this funny way of talking about it, this coded way of talking about it, they give us this idea. You know, can you spare a square is a very common dilemma for people. It's a common dilemma to go into a public bathroom and not have toilet paper and not, you know, and be embarrassed to ask a stranger. (laughs) Right. So this is, and this, you know, this, that's a great twist on it too, because it's like the thing where they often take ideas for everyday life and kind of say like, what's the worst case scenario of this? And it's like, what happens when the person says no? Like (laughs) the whole idea is they're supposed to say yes. It's embarrassing that you're asking for toilet paper. They're supposed to say yes. And then they give us this scenario where someone's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that, too, is kind of a New York thing. You know, I could see somebody in New York Very. saying, yeah, too bad. Your problem. No, thanks. <laughs> you should have checked. <laughs> now, but you, you hit on something there with all these catchphrases. And the next day we would go to work and talk about them. And I was in the workforce at that point, the college then workforce. So so I, I saw it firsthand. But was this the last great American TV hit in the traditional sense where most people now, of course, at that point, we didn't have DVRs really, but we had VCRs. So some people taped it and watched it. But for the most part. Most people sat down on Thursday night, they sat there and they watched the show in real time. Is this really the last great American TV hit? I think it's one of them for sure. And the only other one that even is a contender for this is Friends. And it's only because it it started a little later and therefore, you know, outlasted Seinfeld in that sense, like it went into the 2000s, but kind of spread into the newer era of television. Um, I think it's possible that you would have, could have, you know, TO'd some friends by the end, but it's definitely one of them. And I don't even think, I know this is like heresy in some circles, but I would say that as solid a show as friends is, I'm not sure people like went to work the next day and like quoted it. You know what I mean? They might've said something. They might've said like, Oh, can you believe Ross and Rachel, whatever, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't as innovative and it also wasn't as, I guess, sticky. You know, it wasn't like you had to know what had gone on the previous night on Friends. And so it's definitely among them. Um, you know, I think Friends probably had as many viewers, but, and longevity, you know, people are still watching reruns of that and kids are catching on to it. But 40 million people a week watching this show about cranky terrible New Yorkers that a fairly experimental version of the sitcom form is, is pretty extraordinary. And to have all of those catchphrases and have that stickiness, as you put it to me, one thing you got to have, you have great actors, you have a great premise 
you got to have great writing. Talk to us about the writing because, my goodness, I mean, and you talked about it before. It's one of these things where they would have three or four storylines going in the same episode, and each one was like a classic storyline. Talk to us about the writing. Yeah, it's it's really amazing that they were able to do that. And it became, they figured it out over time. Actually, if you watch the episodes in order now, you'll see them discover this idea um, around the second season, however you count the seasons. Um, you'll see it, actually, there's like a specific episode called The Bus Boy where Larry David kind of hit on this idea by accident where he had two unrelated characters just by script provenance ended up, he was like, oh, they would be in Jerry's apartments, like, you know, they'd be passing each other in the hallway at Jerry's apartment building. And real, and then he was like, oh, it would be really funny if they got in a fight, even though they don't know each other. And that if that threw off all of the rest of the, what happened in the plot line so far. So that's where he first gets the idea. And after that, he's like, this is what we're doing all the time. And it's really hard because it's not about like related stories coming together. It's about completely disparate stories coming together. So one of my favorites is when in the marine biologist, when George pretends to be a marine biologist on his date and ends up having to save a whale, the thing that he ends up having to do is extricate a golf ball from the whale's blowhole. It sounds so it's so crazy if you just if you'd never watch the show and listen to the plot lines, it's nuts. And the real kicker at the end of that episode is when he gives the speech about doing this and when he pulls the golf ball out Kramer sort of casually says was it a titleist and it, it gets this huge laugh because we've learned throughout the episode that Kramer has been like hitting golf, golf balls off the coast into the water <laughs> and he is using titleist so it was his golf ball so that's you know that's the kind of thing it's just extraordinary and it becomes part of why you watch you know this is going to happen. And so now you're like, how are they going to bring all this stuff together? And it makes it really hard to remember episodes, for instance, because I would sit there and interview, be interviewing one of the writers of an episode. And the two of us would be sitting there on our phones going, wait, is that the one where, you know, it's the muffin stumps and the bus tour? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even the writers didn't remember. They would, they wrote the show. And we, and I've watched a bunch of times, obviously, but I think it's part of why you can rewatch is because it feels new and surprising because it's at least, you know, you can't quite remember how it all worked out. So it was a complex process. And a lot of the early episodes, you know, Larry wrote for the most part because it was so complicated, but as they had to expand and get more writers, um, it was a pretty, it was a hard process. It was a hard show to write for. It was stressful. I'm not sure they did anything to make it less stressful for these guys, mostly guys. And, you know, they kind of wrote very individually, which is unusual for a sitcom. Most sitcoms would have what's called a writer's room where you work out stories together and kind of make an outline together. And your main thing is and they assign a writer to go off and write the final product. But it's pretty worked out. Whereas this was kind of every man for himself. You would you were almost just like a freelancer, you know, an individual person with a an office that happened to be there, and you'd have to get four different storylines approved, you know, one for each character before you could write your outline. You have to get your outline approved, then then you know go off and write it, write a draft, and then you'd get notes, and then you'd write a second draft, and often Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld would basically rewrite you anyway. But it was a really complicated process, and it was really hard because you couldn't even go off and start until you had four storylines. 
which is crazy. So they were just constantly, you know, these, these writers were just scouring every inch of their lives ever to find little storylines they could use for these characters. It's interesting because it sounds somewhat competitive and it reminds me kind of the, the situation at Saturday Night Live, which Larry David had been exposed to. I mean, are there some similarities there? Like if you, if you don't, if you don't write something that's, that's great, it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna cut it. It's kind of a, a competitive situation. Yeah, definitely. It sounded like it was really stressful and it was one of the situations where it either suited you really well or not at all. So some of these people, a few, I actually very few really thrived and were on for multiple seasons. So people like Peter Melvin, who wrote about a million of the most <laughs> quoted and uh, famous episodes, you know, yada, yada, real and spectacular, sponge worthy. He wrote a bunch of them and he just worked really well in their sensibility in this environment. They respected him. He could just do this. Whereas most people only work there for a season, first of all. And it was kind of a sign. It was almost like Larry and Jerry would bring them in, sort of mine their lives for stories. And they were often for uh, stand-ups. So, you know, that made sense. They could use stories from their own stand-up lives. And they'd kind of like tap them out and then fire most of them at the end of each season. And, you know, some people really just, floundered in this environment, which makes sense. There's a guy named Fred Stoller who wrote a great single single about his experience on the show called My Seinfeld Year. And I talked to him for my book too. And his story is just really interesting because he was was willing to kind of share how stressful and insecure he felt there. Um, He's just not a super aggressive person. So he had a really hard time even just finding Larry and Barry and getting up the nerve to pitch them. You know, you kind of had to just get them and pitch, which sounds stressful enough as it is. He ended up doing two two episodes that people really do actually remember. One is about um, soup is not a meal. That's the um, episode where, you know, Jerry owes the guy a meal and the guy claims that soup is not a meal, so he has to take him out for another meal. And also the one where uh, Kramer gets in a fight with a monkey at the zoo. But <laughs> Other than that, and that's like at the beginning of the season, at the end of the, of the season that he was on, and everything in between, he just got to a point where he kind of gave up and was like, this is not going to work for me, and I know they're going to fire him at the end of the season, so I don't know what to do, and he would just sort of wander around the lot. He had a lot of friends because he, friends are at different shows because he was a character actor, too, and, you know, he'd just be like, eh, I'm going to go see, say hi to my friends at Roseanne or whatever, and that was kind of, he just was like, all right, I'm just marking the time till I'm done. And that just, it just didn't work out for him. And he, the, the happy ending to that story is that because he is a character actor and it turns out that suits him better. Anyway, he did come back the next season in a character actor role. He was the guy who Elaine could never, um, who, who could never remember Elaine's name. Ever. He, she kept meeting him and he, he would never remember that they had met already. <laughs> so it had a nice ending. He feels fine about it. He has gone on to an extremely, prolific career as a character actor. He was on Everybody Loves Raymond a lot as Raymond's cousin. So, you know, he's fine. And but it just showed the the difference in experiences that some people had. 
Now, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, I do want to say something about the actors, because whether you're talking about the primary ensemble, which was just tremendous, I think we talked about this in the Mary Tyler Moore show, just like she had been very generous to the other actors, Seinfeld was very generous, and they got a ton of, of screen time, and, and most of the time the show wasn't necessarily about Jerry, it was about all the craziness that his uh, friends would get into, but also the, the, the bit actors like Larry Thomas, who was a Soup Nazi, who I got to interview, or uh, people, you know, Brian Cranston, I believe he played Tim Watley, or I don't know the actor's name, but the guy that played Lloyd Braun, and remember Vandalay Industries, I just laughed thinking, they did such a great job, not only casting the primary actors, who were tremendous, uh, but it seems like they really knew what they were doing when they got the people for these little uh, one-shots, or maybe somebody that might show up once every third season it was just uh, amazing the people that they got and they got the perfect person it seems like every time yeah i mean i think it really shows the genius of jerry seinfeld to a large extent right it's like oh he's so generous and he lets all these other people shine it's like he also understood that he wasn't a great actor and that he was very funny but he wasn't a great actor and so like he's a very rich man because all these other people were so great you know what I mean? Um, because the show really, and it came, yeah, it was like you wanted to cast on the show, not only because it was incredibly popular, but because you knew it wasn't just going to be some dumb role that you were in service to main characters necessarily. You'd get your own kind of moment. Even the tiniest little things, you know, you'd have like the dry cleaner or the guy at the fruit stand who bans Kramer you know, these little tiny New York characters who really have their own little moments, like you said, and, you know, also those recurring people like Newman and Jackie Childs and the parents, the parents are extraordinary. I mean, when you watch a sitcom about the parents themselves, either, either set of them, I always say, I like, I really want to delve over the sitcom. Like it feels almost like every time it would go down there, it was, a sitcom in progress. It was like the whole time they've been having crazy antics. We just haven't seen them. Cousin Leo. <laughs> Cousin <Yeah>, Leo. Exactly. <laughs> and the 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 astronaut pen. <laughs> yes. The uh, pen is one of my favorites. It's the first time they go down there. And it's just it's incredible like the way that they did that without it feeling disjointed and unfocused and they I think to use a nerdy term, they did what's called world building. It, that's mostly like a sci-fi nerdy thing, but it's that feeling that this is a this is a full universe that really exists in an alternate dimension. You know that this is these people come in and out of our main characters' lives, and of course they do because sometimes they're in our their lives and sometimes they're not, just like real life. And they all feel like real people who have their own whole backstory going on, regardless of the show. Now, this show, I, I mean, I even wonder if it could be made today for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, to me, it seems, and, and some of this is going to be editorializing on my part, but one is I think the culture is different. I, I think that this is pre-9-11. I think certainly the whole New York piece post-9-11, not, not so f funny of a time. So, so I think that makes a difference. And plus, 
I mean, I'll say this, and this is just my opinion. I think that people have gotten, frankly, so sensitive about things that, I mean, many of the things that are hilarious in Seinfeld would be viewed as politically incorrect today. And I think even Jerry Seinfeld has spoken about his reluctance to perform on college campuses because of this sort of thing. So I guess my point is, I mean, not not asking political beliefs, but do you think that Seinfeld could be made today the way it was back in the 90s? I mean, I I wonder if anything could ever be made (laughs) the way it was when it was made, if that makes any sense. Um, Though I guess you could see more of like a Mary Tyler Moore show kind of being made the same way. But yeah, Seinfeld, it's weird because it's so timeless. Like we can still watch it, but it's also incredibly of its time. It's very much of the 90s. And maybe that's why it works. Maybe it's, you know, it's part nostalgia for us now, even though it also feels really vital. Um, you can still use the phrases, but it also does. It's it's like such a simple time, isn't it? Wasn't the '90s just a silly time? Um, it's just like her news was sort of mostly dumb, you know. And like the worst thing happening was that our president was having an affair with an intern, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, and we were all obsessed with it. Like we were obsessed with very silly things, and it just, like you said, it was pre 9-11. So it just feels like, you know, New York is this sort of playground for just like narcissistic people who want to do whatever they want. And they sort of can. So in that sense, it is very much a reflection of its time and would be different, of course, because it is so part of it is that it's commenting on society and its time. So it would have to change if it was on now. You could make something that has things in common with it, and many of our shows do. But there was this couple months ago, there was a guy online who clearly was very brave, and he made a his own version of spec script for Seinfeld dealing with 9-11. Oh, my. On one, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I told you, he was very brave. So obviously this went viral. Everybody had an opinion about it. And it, what was interesting, well, there are a couple of things that were super interesting to me about it. One was that if you see what he had the characters doing, it was so dead on. And that's because these characters are so well drawn that we can think of, you know, putting them in almost any situation and we'd know exactly what they would be up to. If you said like, what would these four people be doing if they tra- traveled to Mars? You right. come up easily with story ideas like Kramer's going to, you know, try to like get Mars dust and sell it or something. You know, you can kind of like get the general idea of all of these things because they're so specific that it's just clear. And that's part of the genius of the show. That said, it's like it's obviously uncomfortable to read about them dealing with something serious like 9-11 because they're not serious people. And so it's it, that part is. Obviously, that was part of this guy's intention. That's what makes it an interesting experiment. But, you know, it does show that it would be a, have to be a different show. There's also just technology differences and things like that that you'd have to deal with. So you could, I think you could decide. I think it'd be really easy, like I was saying, to say like, okay, what would these four people be doing in 2017? But it's also, it is sensibility that's built a little off from our current times and it, we're probably able to continue watching it because part of us knows that it's not made now. 
Yep. It, it is fascinating. I'll have to check out that. I must have been the only one that missed that. I'll have to check that out. I could I could see one of them complaining about the dust in their apartment or something. But, uh, There's a dust thing. Yeah. There's a dust thing. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Well, uh, Jennifer, I've got to say, again, uh, a pleasure. One last thing I will ask you, and I guess it kind of fits, is – my only disappointment in the show, and I think there are millions who agree with me, is the final episode. I feel like I know what you're going to say. <laughs> the final episode. I yes. mean, I, I looked at that and I basically said, uh, what is that? And my wife uh, had the, we were, we were just married and we had the same reaction. What was that? And I think a lot of people had that. <laughs> I mean, when they got everything else right, I mean everything how could they, in, at least in a lot of people's opinion, get the final episode so wrong? You know, I think there's a couple things. One is that Larry David left the show for two years. The last two years he was there. So this is something that I didn't put together until I was writing this book, because it's rare that I even would watch episodes totally in order. But it turns out that Larry David's final, the last episode he wrote before coming back for the finale is the one where Susan dies. And I felt like that's, really enlightening in terms of his kind of sensibility and direction and like what a mic drop to leave on right like all right i just killed somebody what are you going to do with that on your sitcom <laughs> and they did they de- they did deal with it they recovered from it but it shows you how dark his particular take was and it kind of feels to me like it makes a lot more sense if you think about just not like if if none of those last few seasons existed and it was like Susan's death and they all go to prison. You're like, no, that seems like a reasonable trajectory. So, you know, they brought him back to, to write the finale. He wrote it by himself. I think that's important too. <laughs> you know, not that I'm sure like Jerry had input and whatever they talked about it, but you know, it was, it was mostly a solo effort on his part. It was his big moment to come back and say something. So I think all of that alone shows you so much, right? It's not just like, Oh, another episode for him. Let's finish this. It was like, I'm coming back to give my thing an ending. And I think he wanted to do something big, something more than just, you know, this wasn't even a traditional sitcom. So no one knew what does this look like? This show has a finale. Most shows, you know, somebody gets married or has a baby or moves or something. And that's the end of the show. Nobody wanted to see Jerry and Elaine get married. That would be disgusting. So that's out. You know, there weren't a lot of options. And I always say also just the hype surrounding that thing. If you remember, it was just astronomical and it was pretty much unlike anything we'd ever seen before, honestly, for a finale. Now we forget about every finale, you know, where every week there's some new finale everyone's freaking out about on the internet. But then we didn't take our TV so seriously until Seinfeld. And so suddenly everyone's speculating paparazzi are scaling walls at the studio to try to get a glimpse of what's going to happen. They're shredding scripts. Every time they would shoot a scene for the finale, everyone would have to turn in their scripts and the, you know, um, production assistants would shred them and then make new copies all over again the next day. So it was a really big deal. And I don't know that there's anything they could have done short of revealing the meaning of life that would have satisfied that kind of hype. So there was a lot of weird energy at play here, essentially. And the thing that I admire about the finale is just that he did do something. You know, it was a risk and it was a statement. I think there's things that are off about it. I get that like suddenly they're in a different, totally different place, right? They're not in their normal New York. 
character in this small town that has this kind of dreamlike quality. It's very surreal. And then the other thing that I think is, is I can understand being disturbing for people is if you rewatch it, you realize how much that this was when they're on trial and Becky Childs is defending them and they bring back all the characters. Well, it's great that they bring back all those extraordinary minor characters that we were talking about, but in the process, that means our four main characters are completely passive. They sit there for most of that episode. That's it, which is really weird. And it's kind of a Jackie Child showcase. It's like this is where Jackie Child is, you know, acting real. And I think it's great, so I love it. But it was a weird thing that he had way more lines than our main character in the finale. So all of that stuff together, plus the fact that it does feel a little like a giant middle finger to America, like, ha-ha, you've been watching terrible people. This whole time, you know, I get the the outrage over it. I will say that I have since watched it a couple times, you know, for the book. And if you watch it out of that context, if you watch it as its own thing, it's actually a pretty great little piece of art. And it certainly makes a statement. And it has this kind of like no exit Sartre feel to it if you want to be brainy about it. So there's a, there's a lot good about it, but I understand why in the moment it just didn't play well. And most people have not gone back and rewatched it because they hated it. Yeah, I have to give it a second chance. I mean, it's been almost 20 years. I think I can give it another chance. You can handle it. You can handle it. And <laughs> and honestly, I do think you'll like it. It's a little better. I do agree. There's a little bit off about it. It's like, I don't really buy that those four characters, as terrible as they are, I don't actually think they would like point and laugh at a person being held at gunpoint, for instance, and just like take a video of it. Like, I don't think that that rings totally true to me, but like I said, I, I get what he was doing and I, I liked it. I like that. If you kind of see it as a surreal, maybe not even supposed to be totally real to our characters kind of moment, you know, I think it plays a little better and you're not in that kind of like, you know, eight, 8 million people are watching. What are you going to do moment? Well, it's been a great discussion and just, uh, again, uh, a smile across my face as we recall all these great, uh, great memories from the show. And certainly if you're a Seinfeld fan and if you've listened this far, I think you'd have to be. You need to get the book Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. Jennifer, I'm assuming people can get it Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. Absolutely. Our guest has been Jennifer Kaishan Armstrong. The subject has been Seinfeldia. Jennifer, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. That was a fun show. Seinfeld was one of a kind. I absolutely loved that show in the 90s and probably definitely one of my favorite shows of all time. A lot of good memories. My wife and I were uh, very young (laughs) and uh, we were going out and engaged in the early part of our marriage when that show was out towards the tail end there. And uh, Just a lot of good memories and just something you can look back at and laugh. But I do wonder, could it be produced today? Would too many feelings be hurt? Maybe too many people offended? I think that's really probably the case. Say, well, we couldn't do that. We might make somebody angry. Oh, well, that's why we focus on classic TV here. And let me say that if you love this show, we're really getting to a point where we have to start building an audience on this. And I'm just being very straightforward. I'm one person. And I do have some help with some editors that assist and with my great associate producer, Maddie. But basically, I'm one person with some help from a team. 
And the thing is, we have to focus on things where we see an audience, just like big media companies. We just do it on a smaller scale. And we've seen our crime scene podcast that we just started releasing for free in the last couple of months. We've seen those numbers steadily increase. But honestly, I've got to say the TV numbers have not increased. So I'm going to ask you to please go ahead, go to wherever you listen, iTunes, the podcast app, Google Play. Anywhere they let you do it, subscribe. That helps us tremendously. Rate and review. And also spread the word to your friends who love classic TV. Because if we don't start seeing an increase in this show, we might have to reconsider it. Because again, with limited time and resources, you know, I can only do so many interviews a week that things that you love (laughs) sometimes have to go by the wayside because, again, We want to focus our energies on the things that most people are interested in. I think a lot of people would be interested in this show if they knew about it, but we've got to get the word out. So please, uh, again, spread the word. That's all I can ask. And and hopefully we will see an increase in the the downloads because we've had some spectacular guests over the last uh, almost 30 episodes now. And we want to see those interviews heard because these people spent their time. I spent my time. And uh, we want to get the word out. So please help us with that. We thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time on TV You Grew Up With. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.